The number one thing that I always heard was that he was a shy, sweet boy. He loved hanging out with his older brother and sisters. He loved the bush and he loved doing all of the things that 12 year olds do. Robert Heinz is my uncle. On November 30th, 1982, at the age of 12, he disappeared, and for almost 40 years, our family has been looking for answers. In Canada, a person goes missing every seven minutes. Of the 71,000 people reported missing each year, about 26,000 of them are adults. The good news is that most of the people who are reported missing will be found within a week. About 88% of them will return or be located within that time frame. But what about those that just aren't found? The thousands of mothers and fathers, sons or daughters who disappear without a trace. These are the cases that we really need your help to solve. I'm Ellen White and you are listening to Whereabouts Unknown. Thank you for joining me for today's episode, The Boy Left Behind, The Disappearance of Robert Hines. At this time, we would like to advise our listeners that this podcast contains mention of violence, missing Indigenous people, and child abuse. It may be triggering for some. This episode is not suitable for children or sensitive listeners. Our team at Whereabouts Unknown acknowledges that the subject matter we are about to discuss relates to the disappearance and likely death of a child. We wish to offer our sincere condolences to the family of Robert Hines. Our discussions are intended to be respectful and observant of the tragic loss that this family has suffered. Now, Robert Hines was just 12 years old when he disappeared on December 1st of 1982, Let's look at the events leading up to his disappearance. Robert Hines is, in 1982, an Indigenous child in care. Owing to issues within his family home, Robert is living in the New Horizon Group Home for Boys in Kearns, Ontario. By all accounts, Robert is adjusting well there. He's a likable, easygoing boy who fits in well with the kids who already reside there. Robert has struggled through some very unhappy events in his young life, but the boys' home, where he is quickly surrounded by friends, may have seemed a welcome refuge. Now, many of the boys that have now befriended Robert are high-spirited, with a bit of a tendency to get into trouble. And like most preteens, they struggled with understanding consequences, planning ahead, and with impulse control. These high-energy boys, Robert included, find themselves in a bit of trouble at Robert's new school, Larder Lake Public School. One of the boys begins to laugh one morning during the singing of the national anthem. The other boys join in the laughter and soon all find themselves in detention. Whether it was this minor transgression or another, this band of five boys decide that they've had quite enough of school and its rules, and they decide impulsively to run away. No one seems to remember whose idea it was first, but soon all five boys are conspiring to make a run for it after lunch hour, sticking around just long enough to enjoy hot dog day. At the recess immediately after, they sneak into the bush by the school, intending to run away to exotic places like Toronto or maybe Kirkland Lake. They hadn't really decided. 
the boys formulate a plan to stay in the bush just deep enough so that they can't be easily seen, but where they can at all times see the roadway. Their intention is to get just far enough away from the school and then to head to the highway and hitch a ride. But the boys become hopelessly lost in the dense bush that existed in that location in the 80s. Soon they find themselves cold, damp from the wet snow, and very hungry. As darkness falls, they attempt to build a fire with little success, as any wood they can find is so damp. Ultimately, they are able to build two small fires, which likely prevent them all from perishing on that cold night. During that night in northeastern Ontario, as November turned into December, Robert and his friends sat by these fires, pretending they were on a campout. They talked about their pasts and their families, their friends and their school. They shared confidences and they talked about some of the hurts that each of them had experienced in their short lives. This tiny band of adventurers, all of them just 12 and 13 years old, decided that at daybreak they would make their way to the highway. At dawn, the boys are wide awake and becoming frantic. By this time, the fires have long gone out and they are becoming desperately hungry and so cold. They set off, they hope, in the direction of the highway and soon they are able to hear the sounds of traffic. Cold, tired, hungry, and afraid, four of the five boys, every boy except Robert Hines, reaches the highway on that day. The four boys quickly flag down a passing truck, and the truck driver takes them to a gas station where a call is made to the New Horizon boys' home. A representative of the home comes to collect the boys right away, and only at that time are the adults made aware that Robert is still missing. Let's hear from the manager of the New Horizon boys' home in 1982. Please tell me where you worked in 1982. Um, New Horizons Boys Home in Kearns, Ontario. And what did you do there? What was your, your title or your role description? Um, I guess, for lack of a better term, you would refer to me as the uh, the manager of the home. Okay. And we understand that Robert Hines was a resident of that home during your time there. That's correct. Okay. Now, did Rob get along well with the other kids in the home? Uh, certainly memory serves there was no issues um he was well liked by the other residents of the home um he seemed to get along nobody centered him out for you know his size or stature or anything like that um i never saw him in conflict with anybody did he seem pretty happy to be in the home (laughs) happy is a hard word i guess to define in terms of that you know the We've got all these kids that come into care. They're separated from families. Um, everybody's experiencing their own issues. Um, but again, Robert seemed okay. Uh, you know, there was no acting out behaviors. There was no aggression. There was no uh, conflict with the other residents of the home. Um, he was easy to get a laugh and a smile from. Now, I'm going to take you back, you know, a whole lot of years to November 30th of 1982. Can you please tell me what you remember about the events of that day in relation to Robert Hines? Uh, That would have been the day, I guess, that they um, 
they left the school during the lunch periods. There had been an incident one or two days prior to that. So there was uh, three residents from my program and two from another program in Larder Lake that had all been grounded during the lunch period and were to be supervised. I got a phone call from the school after the classes resumed at one o'clock, uh, stating that the boys weren't there, that they had gone AWOL. Um, and, and that was pretty much it. At that point, we didn't know where they were, or where they could have gone. Now, would it have been the school's kind of policy or procedure to, to call you, you know, in the way they would call parents? Or would they also have alerted the police at that time? No, their their responsibility was basically to to call me as their uh, I wasn't their legal guardian, but I was certainly their guardian, and they were under our care. So they did call. Um, after I hung up from them, I actually picked up the phone and called the OPP and notified the social workers that at that point the boys had gotten a wall from the school. You know, what was the general feeling at that time? It's not uncommon, you know, unfortunately, for people to um, run away from group homes. But was your feeling, you know, collectively um, that they had perhaps just run away and that they'd be back at any time? Yeah, that was that was basically the general the general feeling amongst all of us is that, uh, you know, they probably they might have even have skirted into the bush, uh, gone alongside the highway and come out on the road and then hitchhiked the two points beyond Kirkland Lake and beyond that just, to, you know, to go AWOL. Some of them might have been heading home. Others might have been just heading for something else. Right. Now, was that kind of, you know, what was behind the decision to wait a little bit before starting the the search in the bush? Or did you start that search right away? The search didn't start the day they went missing because nobody knew where they were or that they even had gone into the bush, really. So uh, it was the next morning um that that it was discovered they had spent the night in the bush i i had actually um just was returning from the kirkland lake and the earlton area we were robert and i were actually supposed to fly out to red lake and go to a worship hearing in in red lake and um they still wanted me to come along and as i was returning i've my wife came up the highway and uh, stopped and told me that the boys had spent the night in the bush and she was going down to pick them up. They were at the local gas station in Larder Lake. At that point, we didn't even know that Robert wasn't there. We were just told the boys were at the gas station. Right. So the boys, you know, go missing from the school on November 30th. But as I understand it, everybody kind of assumed because, you know, there's safety in numbers. There were a group of them that they probably had just taken off on some adventure. And you kind of expected they would be back anytime soon. Right. Or that we would hear from somebody else or the OPP would call saying that they picked them up hitchhiking along the highway, which often happened. So the when we discovered that they had come out of the bush uh, the next day on the 1st, um, one of the boys and a staff member took, drove me back to where they had come out of, the, out of the bush. And then I entered the bush and started my search and calling out Robert's name and, and spent the entire day in there doing that. The OPP had been notified, as I said, the day prior when they went missing from the school, as had the social workers. 
Right. Now, you mentioned the boys who had you know, been um, in the bush with Robert on the night of November 30th, and they come out the next day. Did they seem to be cooperative and helpful in you know, bringing you back to the scene, uh, helping you with any information they might have had? Did they seem to be you know, participating and wanting to be helpful in recovering Robert? The two other boys from my program were, you know, more than willing to to take me back and show me where they had come out of the bush. I didn't want to take them back into the bush. I just wanted them to show me where they had come out. They were traumatized enough from having spent the night in there and they were cold, they were damp, they were hungry. Uh, so they just, like I said, they just showed me where they had come out. Um, when I asked what had happened, the, um, if memory serves me correctly, they basically got into a discussion and a dispute over which way they should be going because they could hear the cars on the highway. And because of where they came out, it was on a bend in the road. So that threw them off. Apparently, Robert wanted to go one way. They wanted to go another. And they separated Right. And just to clarify for our listeners, the fact that the boys from the other home, uh, you know, we don't want them to read anything into the fact that the boys from the other home didn't participate in the search. Just to be clear, I, I don't think they were asked, were they? They may have been asked by the OPP. Certainly, I had no access to them and couldn't question them. Right. But I'm, I'm sure that the OPP must have questioned them at the time. Right. But in terms of, you know, not wanting to get out into the bush with you and help to direct you on the search, should we read anything into that? Or is it just possible they were never asked to come back into the bush and really show you oh, where no, they I didn't want them back in the bush. I, you know, I just wanted them to show me where they came out. And like I said, they were, they were cold. They were traumatized already from having spent the night in there. They needed to get home and get looked after. Of course. And, and, you know, you mentioned being traumatized, entirely understandable. These boys would have been what, 12, 13 years old at the time. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And I don't even know whether or not they had anything on them that uh, could have even helped to make a fire, whether they had lighter matches or, you know, anything like that. Right. So you find out the boys are missing all of the what seems like the appropriate phone calls are made. The social workers are called. The police are notified. And you personally spend a whole lot of time and energy in the bush calling for him, trying to find him. Tell me a bit about a set of tracks that you saw in the bush on your search. Yeah, I picked up on a on a set of tracks. They they certainly didn't appear to be uh, adult size footprints. It was um, an awkward time of year. Normally, at the end of November, there would have been a lot of snow up there, but uh, it was a mild winter. They we had had some rains and and went up. Most of the snow was gone, and when it went the trail, I did pick up on uh, kept crisscrossing over um, what we referred to as a claim line in the bush and and it just kept going further back but again there was no responses to any of my calls whether or not they were Robert's tracks I was actually following or just uh, an older set perhaps by the the prospector or something back in there I couldn't tell you okay now the police came out, they had a, a good response. You had some dogs there, you had the helicopter there looking for Robert, but sadly, um, no location at that time, right? Exactly. The uh, When I came out of the bush that day, there was actually an OPP officer on the road kind of waiting for me and uh, to see what I had discovered. 
Um, he said that there was a dog coming in, I believe, from North Bay the next day, uh, as well as a helicopter. Unfortunately, given the weather and the situation at the time, even the helicopter was limited in terms of the amount of time it could spend in the air. Lots of uh, warm air meeting cold air, so it was foggy, it was overcast, low cloud cover. Um, I think that night on the 1st, there was also a frost. So, you know, it, it, things got complicated after that. Right. Now, to tell me just a little bit of, of the terrain out there, I understand there are some bodies of water there. Um, there's a lake, there's some marshes, some swamps. What the boys or did they express to you that they had crossed over any of these bodies of water or were they anywhere near where you saw these tracks? They were in and around where I saw the tracks, yes. As for Larder Lake itself, it's a, a very large lake. It's um, it's pretty deep, but they were nowhere near it. They were, they were across the highway and on the opposite side of the bush. Now, on the side that they were on, there were certainly a lot of marshy areas and swampy areas. Um, thick bush, uh, lots, lots of uh, muskeg, um, overgrown. You know, you, you couldn't you couldn't run through there without hitting a tree. <laughs> yeah, I understand it. It's very dense. Now, it was, as you say, an unseasonably warm November, early December. Would these bodies of water that the boys would have crossed over, would they have been frozen solid or would there be a potential for somebody at Robert's weight to fall through? Oh, no, there would have been, would have been a potential to fall through. And I'm, uh, from what I remember being in there, the, what, the water I did see, it wasn't frozen over. So Robert Hines doesn't come out of the bush with the other boys. During the course of our investigation, we had a chance to confirm the identity of the four boys who were with Robert on November 30th and December 1st, 1982, and who all made it to safety. One of these boys passed away in 1992, but we had a chance to interview two of the others. They heard that we were looking to speak with them and they didn't try to avoid us in any way. In fact, both of them called us, offering any information that they could. Using one of our most experienced investigators, we interviewed both of these boys separately for over one hour, asking each of them some very tough questions. Our impression was that the boys were not being evasive and that they had been troubled by the loss of their friend and the cloud of suspicion that has hung over their heads for decades. And we think it's important to note that the two boys we interviewed, now both men in their 50s, had at the time of our conversation really not spoken in many, many years, so they hadn't had a chance to coordinate any stories. Let's hear what Robert Hines' niece Mariah has to say about the four boys who made it to the highway that day. Uh, yeah, as I mentioned, and as you know, your uncle disappeared November 30th of 1982. Um, what did you hear about the disappearance? You know, what did you think had happened to him as you were growing up? Um, as I was growing up, it was always rumors. It was always, um, you know, the boys that he lived with or the boys from the other home. Um, it was always the people he was hanging out with. And, you know, it was never really consistent we were always getting different stories every time different kids and uh it was we never really got any answers 
Yeah, of course. Of course. I mean, so many years, right? And and sometimes rumor mills just kind of run wild. Now, you connected with us um, some weeks back. And when you connected with us, what were you hoping would happen? You know, what information were you looking for in regard to your uncle's disappearance? Um, mostly just looking for justice, you know, figuring out uh, what really did happen to him, um, whether he truly did you know, disappear, um, or if, you know, something even sinister happened. Uh, our family believes in our heart that he may have passed away, but um, we still like to know what happened and the circumstances behind that. Now, let's take a look at what these boys told us in their private and individual interviews. And just to note, it's pretty consistent with what they related way back in 1982. The boys advised that on December 1st, they made their way toward the highway. When it became apparent that they were almost there, Robert wanted to turn back. All of the boys were tired, cold, and hungry, and they were all starting to think of how much trouble they were going to be in. All five of the boys knew that they were in big trouble and that it would likely lead to some kind of punishment. They expected that there would probably be yelling, likely grounding, and some fear that they may even be kicked out of the boys' home. Now, for most children, consequences and punishments are things that they fear, but sometimes recognize as unavoidable. But Robert had already been shaped and molded by tragic experiences he had had long before he ever entered the boys' home. As a newcomer there, he may not have known exactly how much trouble he would be in. Having adults angry at him may well have acted as a huge trigger, and Robert's fight-or-flight mechanism may have just kicked in. He may have felt that running back into the bush, with all of the boys calling to him and one even chasing him until he lost sight, preferable to having to deal with what might come next if he came out to the highway. So according to the boys who were there, Robert was just too afraid to come out of the bush and accompany them to the highway. The cold, hunger, and exhaustion he was feeling were no match for his fear at what might happen next. It seems very hard to believe that Robert would have chosen to stay in the bush on that day, but we can understand why he might. He knew he was in trouble. And punishment is something that Robert learned to fear greatly long before he ever became a resident of the New Horizons group home. He also knew that his family had moved quite close to where he was living, and Robert dearly loved his mother and siblings. Perhaps he wanted to return to them. Robert was also scheduled to attend a wardship hearing on December 1st, and he was well aware of the date of these proceedings. Robert would have known that at this wardship hearing, his stay at the home could be extended, or he could be separated from his mother and siblings on a permanent basis and possibly placed for adoption. Robert may have wanted to separate from the other boys to return home to his mother or to just buy a little time and perhaps miss that wardship hearing. Let's hear from Robert's childhood friend, Nancy. So, Nancy, how did you come to know Robert Hines? Um, I don't um, remember never knowing Robert. It was like he was in our school. Um, he was in um, my classroom, not through every year. Um, I noticed through the school pictures, but 
but the last picture that you have posted on your website, it was a class, it wasn't a class picture. They had decided to use individual pictures that year and I was right beside him and I'll, I, I don't know why I remember that. Um, but I remember that. And, um, he was in our class. He was a quiet guy. Uh, for a little while, they lived out, um, in the area that I lived in. So he was on my bus. Um, I was friends with his sister and yeah, he was just part of our life from, I think the time that like, you know, when you go back in your mind, I just don't remember not knowing him. Now you told us that he was a, you know, kind of a bit of a quiet guy. Is there anything else that comes to mind about him or his personality? Um, back in the day, it was probably, boys were probably still yucky when we were 12, right? Uh, the girls hung out with the girls. We did double dutch. The boys played some baseball. You know, we played marbles and um, hockey and things like that. So he was mostly with boys. I was mostly with girls. But, you know, we, we were in the, each other's class. So, you know, he was intelligent enough. He would answer questions at school. Um, he was just kind of shy and quiet. Right. Now, Robert, shortly before his disappearance, he switched schools, right? Well, he, I believe that he was in our class picture. Mm -hmm. So he had to have left shortly before. He couldn't have been in the boys' home very long. Um, if we took pictures in September or October, he would have been gone from then and he disappeared on November the 30th. Right, very close. So that's very much, like I was trying to figure out the timeline, but it's not a very big one at all. Do you remember how you found out that he had gone missing? No, um, I asked my mom today. I assumed that she heard it on the radio and told us, but she doesn't remember. Um, I mean, there was probably talk at school and I'm sure it was on the radio as well but I don't really recall how I found out. And I, when I think back on it, I just always knew that for he, for whatever reason, he was put into a boy's home and from there he disappeared into the woods. Right. Do you remember how that, you know, when you did find out that he had gone missing, do you remember how that made you feel? You know, were people in the community concerned that a bad person was out there and all kids were in danger or did everybody just kind of think that maybe he'd run away? I think there was the runaway aspect of it. Um, it's also because he was 20 minutes out of, out of our town. Um, so he wasn't in our school anymore. It probably would have impacted us a lot more had it been. And before, like we we're in Catholic school. So there was that aspect of, we, we probably said some prayers for his safe return. Right. Um, but there could have been like an animal that got him or you know, you don't want to believe that anything bad could really happen. Although like a lot of bad things happened when we were kids, that would probably be the earliest um, memory I would have of, you know, somebody that I knew going missing. Um, but there was another girl like years ago who had gone missing and they didn't solve her, her abduction and murder until a couple of years ago. Um, yeah, I guess, it wasn't in our town. It was in Larder Lake. So right. there wasn't as much worry as it would have been if it was would have been right in Kirkland Lake. Mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of privacy in homes. Uh, you know, we didn't talk about really what happened behind closed doors as much now as we do. Um, I remember being told, you know, don't 
don't talk to Maureen about it unless she talks to you because you might hurt her feelings or upset her in some way. And that was something we didn't want to do. And nowadays we have our computers. So if we were to go on online and, and read about something like this, you know, automatically I would say, hey, Mo, I heard what happened. Uh, is there anything I can do to help you? And parents would jump on the bandwagon too, right? To help out her, her mom or, you know, to do something to help the family find him. And we weren't part of that uh, big search or anything like that because we didn't live in Larder. Right. That makes sense. Now, did Robert's disappearance impact your childhood or, or change you as a person in any way? I don't know. I'm a real true crime buff. That's all I read. And uh, I wanted to write a book about murders and things like that. I never got around to doing that. But there was something in me that always wanted to write the, his story or, you know, another story that I'd heard. So... I don't know. We were always cautious. We weren't allowed to really go anywhere on our own. We were 12 years old. So we we're always told, don't talk to strangers. Don't go anywhere by yourself. Don't walk alone after dark, you know, stuff like that. So our parents probably protected us. I think we were well protected by our families. And uh, there was just that always, you know, your mom's voice saying, you know, well, don't do that or don't go there or, you know, yeah, there was always a stranger danger, but it was never called that. Mm -hmm. yeah. We were a little coddled, I think. <laughs> now, listen, what did you think when you saw that after 39 years, uh, we were investigating Robert's disappearance? I thought this is great. You know, um, I messaged right away. I put a little blurb on there about being in his class. I'm glad that you guys are looking into this further because... His family really deserves to have answers and to find out what happened to their brother. Um, you know, the mom has passed away by now, but, you know, I think she would be happy if she could look down and see that somebody's still fighting for her son, trying to find the answers. So let's now look at some of the possible outcomes that our team has considered in relation to this case. The first is, did 12-year-old Robert Hines four foot eight inches tall, all of about 80 pounds, tiny and shy without a single cent in his pocket, set out on that day to start his life over again elsewhere. We were able to quickly rule this out. Robert would have had no identification and no money, and he was far too young to either work or apply for social assistance. The second that we had to sadly look at, as we do in every single missing persons case, was the potential of suicide. Was Robert so afraid and so lost on that day that he chose to take his own life? Robert was just as cold, wet, and hungry as the rest of them on that day, but they were unable to convince him to come out of the woods. Instead, the boys advised that he ran deeper into them rather than coming out to safety. The third possible outcome that we looked at was that Robert, alone in the bush, was attacked by an animal predator. For more information, we reached out to a consultant to our team who is well-versed in animal behavior. He advised that an animal attack in that area would be extremely rare. The area was inhabited at that time by bears and wolves, but his feeling is that although it is not impossible, it would be unlikely for any of them to attack a live human being. 
In the fourth potential outcome, we looked at whether or not Robert may have encountered a human predator in the bush or on any roadway if he made it out to one. The area in 1982 was well known to have loggers, prospectors, and others in and around it or just passing through on the highway. Could a predator have picked up Robert? In the fifth possible outcome, we looked at the employees and others associated with the group home in Kearns that Robert was living in. We received many, many tips about an alleged sexual predator who was associated with the boys' home in the area at that time. Our investigation revealed that the person so many of you messaged us about was not associated with the New Horizon boys' home that Robert lived in. The man who we were told is alleged to have been charged with manufacturing and distributing child pornography was not an employee of the New Horizons home and would have had no access at any time to Robert Hines. The manager of the New Horizon Boys Home at the time, the person you heard in our interview earlier, was not a suspect in any way in regard to Robert's disappearance. In fact, that person was at the home at the time the boys disappeared and was the person who received the call from the school. He called the Ontario Provincial Police, all of the social workers involved with the boys as well. When it was discovered that the four boys had exited the bush, he and another staff member headed into the bush to commence an immediate search for Robert. In the sixth outcome, we had to look at the fact that there was a man associated with Robert's family who we are told had been very abusive with him previously. This person was said to have directed various types of severe abuse at Robert. This man had recently moved to that very area. Did Robert somehow cross paths with this person in the first day or two of December of 1982? If Robert came out of the bush at a later time or in a different location than the other boys, did he perhaps encounter this man? We would have liked to have asked this man ourselves. However, he passed away in 2016. So let's take a few minutes and look at a seventh potential outcome, one that has been the source of rumors and so much distress for Robert's loving family for almost 40 years. It has been suggested, as Robert's niece said, that perhaps the four boys who were with Robert on that day had killed him and hidden his body out there in the bush. As I'd mentioned, we had interviewed two of the three surviving boys who are now middle-aged men. They were very cooperative and expressed sadness at the rumors they'd heard, but even more so, they indicated sadness at the loss of a boy who would quickly become their friend and brother. The boys in the group home setting had bonded quickly and deeply. They cared about Robert, and not one of them felt any anger or upset toward him before or after they ran away. While no one can remember any of the arguments that the rumors have suggested, uh, perhaps one over the direction to head in or over how to build a fire, they do remember their one and only disagreement. When the four boys who made it to safety that day urged Robert to come out of the bush with them, well, he argued that he would not. These men were consistent with their stories, no matter how intense our questioning became. And we would ask our listeners not to read anything into the fact that we didn't interview that third man. 
owing to time limitations. We were just not able to connect with them. They did not try to avoid us in any way. Now, we also looked at how incredibly rare it is to see child murderers, especially acting in a group of four. And in fact, we couldn't find a single case of four children working together to kill another. These young boys were questioned intensely, according to all accounts by the police who were investigating Robert's disappearance. It is incredibly hard to believe that had any of these boys actually killed Robert, that their stories wouldn't have changed when they told them to police, then again to social workers, then again to the group home manager, and to others. So many adult offenders get caught because their stories become inconsistent. They get caught up in their lies and they slip up when telling their stories. But this didn't happen with these boys. Now, a couple of the boys who ran away with Robert on that day had had some previous minor scrapes with the criminal justice system, sometimes because they were coerced by someone older in their home communities. But they were caught and they confessed every single time. It's incomprehensible to us that a boy would be comfortable and able to lie about committing or witnessing a murder, but be unable to keep their mouths shut about a simple shoplifting offense. Now, one of the group home employees relayed to us a story that helped us get some perspective around these boys. On a canoe trip, one of the boys had snuck into the food supplies and had eaten some of the peanut butter that was brought along for the trip with his fingers. Within hours, the other boys had provided this information to the adult in charge. Preteens or young teens aren't good at standing up to questioning or at keeping secrets in general, but the boys we spoke with haven't wavered in their testimony. We also heard about statements from the boys that were overheard by others. Now, sometimes teenagers can say crazy things. We have to be very careful of imposing an adult's interpretation on adolescent emotions. Teens express emotions in ways that are very different than adults, and they can act and behave in what might seem to us to be odd ways. Overhearing a teen say something like, he got what he deserved, could be interpreted by a listener as something ominous and frightening. But we have to look at the fact that if that statement was made at all, perhaps one of the 12 or 13-year-old boys who said it was just expressing the fact that they were very angry with Robert for refusing to exit the bush and come to safety. Child murderers are incredibly rare and they have been studied in depth. Most child murderers are sociopaths. They often exhibit a behavior of bullying, starting fires, and harming animals, escalating over a period of time to killing other children or adults. Because the damage that causes this kind of behavior is so profound, it is virtually unheard of that someone who kills as a child will go on to lead a normal life. Yet these men have held long-term jobs, raised families, and have been remarkably stable, staying out of any kind of serious trouble in the 40 years since Robert's disappearance. We did see an old news clip from 1995, and we did hear about and have a chance to read part of an alleged statement from one of the boys made many years after Robert's disappearance. 
In the portion of the statement that we saw, our team felt that it mirrored a lot of the what-if kinds of questions that police services and ourselves sometimes use. Persons of interest are given a series of what-if questions to answer. Things like, for example, what if someone had killed that person on that day? How do you think they might have disposed of the body? That kind of question can elicit an answer that, taken out of context, can make a person think that the individual being questioned was actually there, when in fact they are just guessing or trying to logically fill in blanks. When a person is young, intimidated by the interviewer, or if they want to please the interviewer to gain their approval, we have seen people start to fill in the blanks with some pretty outrageous things. This kind of questioning has resulted in statements being recanted and in wrongful convictions because it can lead a less aware person down a path where it seems like they are confessing before they are even aware that they are doing so. Had a boy who had been in the bush on that day actually confessed to Robert's murder, he would have been charged, as well as any others who were implicated. While it is helpful to have a body as evidence, there has been more than one successful prosecution for first-degree murder in Canada where no body was ever found. Now, we also looked at the evidence in this case. Had the boys killed Robert with sticks and then burnt him on a fire, as that 1995 news clip suggests, there would have been evidence on their bodies or their clothing yet none was seen by the people who picked them up or cared for them. What we do have evidence of are a single set of smaller footprints in the snow found on that day that head in a different direction from the four boys who made their way to the highway. According to the searcher who saw these, the single set of footprints left a claim line, kind of a more established trail, and went back into the bush. Unfortunately, the search dogs who arrived a couple of days after, after a series of frosty nights, were unable to pick up any scent. We considered an eighth and final outcome in regard to what may have happened on that day. Our team thinks it likely that, sadly and tragically, young Robert Hines may have died in the bush that day as the result of misadventure. Making his way through the woods in sub-zero temperatures, dressed only in a light jacket, damp from the wet snow, Robert could have easily been overcome by hypothermia. His small body's temperature dropping dangerously low, causing him to lose consciousness and then sadly pass away. Or given that the many swamps and ponds in the area were not fully frozen over, or if Robert had made it back as far as Larder Lake itself, he may have fallen through the unstable ice surface. Our team's winter survival expert had this to say about this possible outcome. It would be easy to get lost in that area. I know that working in that area myself, it was easy for me to get confused, and I do have great bush sense. A young boy could be a very different story. He also added, the area is a beautiful area with lots of bush that would be easy to disappear in. Our expert also made it clear that it would not be unusual for no trace of Robert Hines to ever be found.
Here is a final word from Robert's niece, Mariah. So Mariah, just a few weeks ago, we started posting about Robert's disappearance on our Whereabouts Unknown Facebook page. And literally tens of thousands of people have viewed those posts. And we've really had dozens and dozens have reached out with some really touching stories about Robert, you know, what he meant to them as a friend when they were in elementary school. We've heard so many wonderful things about him. People sending in class pictures that your family may not have had. Um, you know, one lovely listener even sending in drone footage of the old boy's home. Um, people have really reached out in record numbers because they care so much about Robert and about your family. So kind of how does that make you feel? Um, my family and I definitely appreciate it so much because uh, we went so long without having much at all, even photos and videos. And now, you know, people, strangers that I never even heard their name before are coming through and sending us pictures of him in school, pictures that we don't have. And, you know, it's just it's so appreciative and we're just so happy. I'm Ellen White and you have been listening to The Boy Left Behind. The Disappearance of Robert Hines on Whereabouts Unknown. Thank you.